Good. Just want to read a couple of verses from Genesis chapter 3. Very familiar to you. After Adam and Eve had fallen, in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? When Adam and Eve were in the garden, God came calling. He came in the cool of the day. He came to commune with them, to have a personal, intimate relationship. It's hard for us to imagine what those moments must have been like. Wouldn't you like to have been there to hear the conversations? But then Adam fell. But after man fell, God still kept calling. And that's the wonderful thing about God, the mercy of God. He still kept calling. And he literally called out, Adam, where are you? He was calling for Adam. And even though man today is still disobedient, still rebellious, still unbelieving, yet God still comes calling to men, to women, to boys, to girls. He comes calling, Adam, where are you? He's calling them. Listen to this call in Isaiah 1.18. Come now. He says, he's calling, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And in the New Testament, Jesus calls men, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And even right at the very end of the Bible, almost the last things that are said, here is the last call, and the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that is thirsty say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come, and whoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. So from Genesis to Revelation, God comes calling. And he's come calling on men and women today. And he called on me. And he called on you. And we're praying that he will call on our families and our loved ones and those whom we live beside or work beside. That in his mercy and in his patience, he will still come calling and give us an opportunity. So what are the means that God uses to call men to himself? First of all, he calls men through believers. In Luke 14, Jesus is talking about a man who made a great feast. 
And so he said to his servants, go out and call them, come for all things are now ready. Now, of course, as we told you before, whenever we read that story in depth, that was not the first call. In those days, when somebody made a great feast and he was going to invite some friends, he would give them advance notice. He would tell them days ahead or sometimes weeks ahead that in such and such a day, I'm holding a feast and I want you to come. But then nothing more is said until the day of the feast. That's to give them time to change their diaries or make other arrangements, whatever they need to do. But then on the day, and here we have it, he sent his servants out and says, come, all things are now ready. Now is the accepted time. Now is the moment you're to come. And they all with one consent began to make excuses. I bought a piece of land. I must go and see it. I bought five yoke of oxen. I must go and try them. I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Not reasons, but just excuses. And so what happens next? Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you have commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste of my supper that my house may be filled. Jesus was calling, and in the context that that's written, and he was calling the nation. He was calling the people who rejected him and who refused him. And so he called them to go into the highways and the byways and to compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. You and I are the ones that are to call men and women to Christ. We're not to hide our light under a bushel. We're a city that's set on a hill. We're let our light shine. But we know that not everybody will accept the invitation. Not everybody will want the invitation. But our business is to give it anyway. Christianity may be a personal thing, but it's not a private thing. People want us to make it private, but it isn't. We've already got the call and the command and the mandate to go and to tell and to invite and to compel and to bring in. This is the good news. Social media is full of people's good news. Something that's happened that's been wonderful, they want to share it. Our dear friends from the Philippines is just back from Paris. And they had umpteen photos on Facebook. Why not? Beautiful place to be. Fully enjoy it. Some of you, when you get an invite to dinner, it's on Facebook. The whole world knows you've been invited out to wherever. Some of you, when you get a new car or whatever the case may be, and it's all good. There's nothing wrong with that. That's good news. Why not share it? You're happy to share it. You want other people to enjoy what you're enjoying. That's fine. But what about the good news? What about the greatest news? Are we quick to share that as quick as we're to share everything else? In John chapter 1, Jesus 
is about to call some of his disciples. Verse 35, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, that's John the Baptist, and looking at Jesus as he walked by, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to save when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. You see, he's still calling men. Come and see. And they came, and they saw where he was staying, and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. No better place to start than your own family. Sure there's not. No better person to invite to Christ than you. No better person than you to invite them to come to the Savior. They know you. They've seen the change in your life. Hopefully they respect you. No better person than you to share the good news. And so Andrew, first of all, goes to his family. He goes to his brother, Peter. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You're Simon the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go into Galilee. And he found Philip. And he said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And so Philip, the first person he thinks of, is his dear friend Nathanael. The first person that comes into his mind, I must go and tell Nathanael. How quick he was to share that good news. He felt called by Christ, and now he's going to call his friend to come. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Exact words that Jesus said. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed is him is no deceit. Nathanael said, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Most people that come to Christ, they come to Christ through personal invitation. The little woman at the well of Samaria, when Jesus talked to her, and then in that moment, whenever he opened her eyes, and he told her her whole life. And she was absolutely amazed. And suddenly she realized, this is the Messiah. And what did she do at that point? He called her. What was the first thing she, she set her water pot down, she went into the city, 
And she said to the man, come see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is this not the Christ? And if you read the story, they believed her. And the village came out to see Christ. And he talked to them and shared with them. And then they said, now we believe, not just because you said, but we believe because of what he said. But she was the evangelist, wasn't she? Some of the best soul winners are the people who are just saved. They don't know a whole lot of theology, but they know Christ. He's changed their life, and they know they're changed, and they just can't wait to tell somebody. And she couldn't wait to go into that village and just start talking about it. Christ calls men through believers, and the Spirit and the bride say, Somebody has got to say, come. You may be the one to personally lead them to Christ, or you may be the one who will invite them to the house of God, or to a gospel mission, or a crusade, or something where they can find Christ. But you may be the one to do that. Somebody has got to give an invitation somewhere. Somebody somewhere influenced us for Christ, didn't they? Somebody gave an invitation one way or the other. He calls men through the preaching of his word. In Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 11. For the scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. I'm glad that preaching is still in vogue as far as God is concerned. And it's never going to be out of vogue as far as God is concerned. The preaching of God's word is absolutely vital. The preaching of the gospel of Christ is absolutely vital. Whether that's done behind a pulpit or whether that's done in your workplace, when you witness to somebody, you're sharing that word of God. And it's absolutely important to do that. And when you do that, something can happen. God can take that word for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul said, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Adrian Rogers, the late Adrian Rogers, the great preacher, he said that there are many men who can preach the gospel better than I can, but nobody can preach a better gospel than I can. And we have got a gospel that is unbeatable, that is the greatest news 
that a human being could ever hear and embrace. And we have all got it to share. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Well, let me read verse 16 first. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom or through worldly wisdom, its own wisdom did not know God. But it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. To some people, it's just going to sound absolutely nuts. <laughs> but to those who receive it, to those who take it by faith, becomes the power of God unto salvation to who believes. For Jews request a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than them. And that's why he says, For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the things that are wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. When Jesus, in Matthew 24, talked about things at the end of the age, he said something that was very, very important. He was talking about the signs of the times. In verse 3 of Matthew 24, Now he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And many will be offended. They will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. 
But he who endures to the end shall be saved. But look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. There is the key, the key of Christ's second coming. Then the end will come. When? When this gospel is preached to all nations. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. And thank God for those who do go out, and that's why we support the missions that we do, to the ends of the earth. Because the more we do that, and the more they go out, and the more nations are reached, the quicker Christ will return. Amen? The preaching of the word is absolutely vital. His second coming is dependent on the gospel going to the nations. Then he calls men through his grace and his goodness. Romans 2 and 4, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Every blessing that a man or woman has received can be traced back to the goodness of God. Every talent, every gift that a man or woman has can all be traced back to the goodness of God. Calvin called that common grace. That is why you can get somebody who's not a believer, who's not a Christian, who maybe doesn't even believe in God, and yet they are very, very talented and gifted. How come? Because of common grace. Because God blesses every human being and puts within them abilities, sometimes genius, Now it's up to them how they use that, but God gives it to them. And God has given every single one of us some ability, something or other. And that's his grace. That's his mercy towards us. Maltby D. Babcock said, Back of the loaf is the snowy flour, and back of the flour is the mill, and back of the mill is the wheat and and the shower and the sun and the Father's will. Even a loaf of bread, you can trace it back to the goodness of God. James says, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights It comes down, in whom there is no variation. There's no change. There's no shadow of turning. And it all comes from the Father of lights. You know, I was thinking just last night, and I was thinking about the goodness of God and how this, this very earth that we live on and of all of the planets, this is the one that is made for man to inhabit. Can I give you a verse for that? Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. And verse 18. For thus saith the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. 
who formed it to be inhabited. This is the only planet that was formed by God to be inhabited. And even though they are desperately, desperately trying to find other planets that could be habitable, they haven't found them. They're convinced they will, but they've never found them. And out of all the ones that they have found, <laughs> there's no one even close to being inhabitable. Such is the state of our little earth. You know, when you think about it, even the way that it spins, even the rate that it spins is perfect for life on earth. A thousand miles an hour. And go on my hand that way, actually, it goes anticlockwise. A thousand miles an hour gives us a 24-hour day. Just perfect for us, isn't it? Can you imagine if a day was a hundred hours? Eh? Can you imagine if it was six hours? It was 24 hours. Just absolutely perfect for us. Just to have the right amount of daylight, the right amount of darkness. You can have the right amount of sleep. Perfect for animal life. Perfect for human life. It's wonderful. Just perfect. The right length of year. Perfect. 365 days. Wonderful. <laughs> Just perfect. So that we can have the right balance in nature. The right balance in the seasons. Just perfect. 365 days. Our journey around the sun. It's wonderful. The right tilt on the axis, 23 and a half degrees. Perfect. Absolutely perfect for us. So that the way the sun shines on the earth as it travels around the sun, so that we can have our seasons. And they're perfect seasons. Not too long, not too short, not too hot, not too cold. Perfect for crops to grow, for harvest to be, for animals to hibernate. Winter's short enough so that they don't starve to death. <laughs> Just absolutely perfect. God made it that way. Just the right tilt. Of some things that I have down here, I'm just trying to think of the right distance from the sun. Scientists tell us that if we have been 10% just closer to the sun, <laughs> it would have been a furnace we've been living on. It would have burned up. If we'd just been 20% further away, it would have been like one giant iceberg. But just the right distance. You know, our planet's one of the few that is almost circular going around the sun. Most planets going around their suns are elliptical. For instance, Mars, this is, why the, this is why the big challenge to go to Mars today, because at some point it's closer to the Earth, and they've got to get onto it, or got to get into its orbit and it's closer to the Earth, because then it goes away at an elliptical, like a cigar-shaped movement around the sun, and it's going to take one and a half to two years to get there and back, because it gets so far away. Whereas the earth is almost circular, perfect for us. This is all God's design. Think of the moon. You probably never think of the moon, but anyway, think of it for a minute or two. 
the moon, it's the biggest satellite in, in our solar system. There's lots of moons out there, but ours is the biggest relative to its mother planet. And it's perfect size for us. If it was bigger, gravitation would crush us. It would literally break our bones. If it was smaller, there'd be less gravitation, and you'd find it difficult to walk or run, because whenever the astronauts went on the moon, they were, when they bounced, they were bouncing about three or four feet in the air, weren't they? Because of lack of gravitation. See, the, the, the satellites, the, the International Space Station, that's wearing around our heads tonight, the six astronauts on board, every single day they've got to do hours and hours and hours of exercise just to keep their bone density right. Because the moment they get into vacuum of space, their bone density immediately reduces because we're not made for that. So they have to do it. But this is just right for us. Right gravitational pull. Again, if it was bigger and the gravitational pull was bigger, what would happen? You'd have tsunamis every day. Because that's what causes the tides, isn't it? And if it was smaller, there'd hardly be any tides. What would happen if there were no tides? The sea would go stagnant. Because the sea is like a big giant washing machine. Because of the ebb and flow of the tide. That keeps the thing circulating. That keeps it clean. That keeps it from going stagnant. This is all the handiwork of God. How can these people see this and know this and still say, this just happened? <laughs> Nuts, isn't it? It is just the right albedo. In other words, whenever the sun shines on it, it reflects to us and it's just right. Just the right amount is reflected to the earth. Otherwise, it would blind us. And if it wasn't for the sunshine on it, you wouldn't see it. It wouldn't even be there, as far as we could see. But it's just absolutely right and perfect for us. This is the goodness of God for us. 15 degrees Celsius is the perfect temperature for life on earth. And this is why scientists are so afraid, and they keep telling us of this global warming thing, because if it goes up one or two points, we're in trouble because it's finely balanced. Venus is about 480 degrees. That's enough to melt rock. You wouldn't want to go there on your holidays, sure you wouldn't. Hmm? Neptune is about 270-something degrees below. You wouldn't want to go there either. There's none of those planets out there that would be useful for us or for human life or for any life except our little planet. It's so far out from the middle of our galaxy that it gives us just the right amount of light. If we were closer in, you couldn't sleep at night. It would be hot. It would be as bright as the sun 24 hours a day, and you couldn't survive. There's only one sun in our sky. What if you had 10 suns? Because if you were in closer to the middle, you might have 100 suns. But we're far enough out just to have the one sun. We're far enough away from it. All of this is the design of God, and it's all made for us perfectly. The perfect atmosphere that we can breathe. Can't breathe in any other place. Sure you can't. The right magnetic field. You could go on and go on and go on all night. But enough to say that is the goodness of God. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about all these things. He says men are without excuse. 
They suppress that truth because they don't want God to rule in their lives. That's the bottom line. So God does all of this, shows us all of this because of his goodness to draw us so that men will say there has to be a God. And if there is a God, how can I find him? And then finally, he calls men through the adversities of life. C.S. Lewis said these words, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Let me put that into language you understand. The 9-11 terrorist attack on the Twin Towers in America had a profound effect for a few weeks. For a few weeks afterwards, the churches were full. People were frightened. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know what was coming next. For the first time in America's history, they were attacked by terrorists from outside their own country. It never happened before, even during the wartime. And they were afraid. So what did they do? They turned to God, to the church, looking for answers. And you know the sad, tragic part about it? Most of the churches had no answers for them. And they lost a harvest that could have been. Because in that situation, they were giving no answers to people who were searching and looking, who were afraid of what was coming next. What an opportunity was missed. And then, of course, after a while, panic's over, things settle down, people goes back to the next pain comes, to the next megaphone sounds. And we have seen that even in individual lives over the years. Some of you maybe have relatives. Couldn't talk to him, but God didn't want to know about church. No interest. Bang, something happens. And suddenly, they're willing to listen. You know, lots of people, their, their cup was full and running over. They're full of good health, and they've got a great job, and they have money in their pocket. And you talk to them about the things of God. They're not interested. Thank you very much. I'm doing well. I don't need any crutches in this life. And that's fine until the doctor's report comes, and they're absolutely shocked. Their foundation is pulled away and their stock market crashes and their business goes bust and then suddenly they begin to listen because their self-confidence is shot through. God often calls men through the adversities of life. For some it is when they get behind bars. For others it's when they're on the operating table. How many people has laid on an operating table and says, God, if you bring me through this, God, if you get me out of this mess, and suddenly they're panicking and they're reaching out from beyond themselves and everything they trust in. For others, it's the divorce court. John Newton was a blasphemous, foul-mouthed slave trader. He plied his trade in the misery of other human beings and did so happily. I read a little article the other day about Newton. It says, Newton was born in London in 1725. He was the son of a commander of a merchant ship. When John was 11, he went to sea with his father. He made six voyages with him. 
before his father retired. In 1744, he was pressed into service on a man of war, HMS Harwick. Finding conditions on board intolerable, he deserted, but was soon recaptured and publicly flogged and demoted from midshipman to common seaman. Finally, at his own request, he was exchanged into service on a slave ship, which took him to the coast of Sierra Leone. There he became the servant of a slave trader and was brutally abused. Early in 1748, he was rescued by a sea captain who had known his father. And John Newton ultimately became captain of his own ship, one which plied the slave trade. And although he had some early religious instruction from his mother who had died when he was a child, he had long since given up any religious convictions. However, on the homeward voyage, while he was attempting to steer the ship through a violent storm, he experienced what he was to refer to later as his great deliverance. He recorded in his journal that when all seemed lost and the ship would surely sink, he exclaimed, Lord, have mercy on us. Later in his cabin, he reflected on what he had said and he began to believe that God had addressed him through the storm and that that grace had begun to work in his life. For the rest of his life, he observed the anniversary of May the 10th, 1748 as the day of his conversion, a day of humiliation in which he subjected his will to a higher power. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. And he ended up a great preacher of the gospel with a church that they couldn't get any more into. It was packed continually. He became a friend of George Whitfield and, and some of the great evangelists of his day. He became a great hymn writer himself and a mighty evangelist. But he didn't reach out to God until adversity struck, until his life was in danger. And so God has all kinds of ways of calling upon men today. And however he does it, that's up to him, isn't it? As long as men come. I often say if somebody can come the easy way or they can come the hard way. Better come the easy way than the hard way. But sometimes we're hard-headed, aren't we? And we just don't listen until something happens. And then maybe for the first time, we listen. What's God saying? Is God in this? And so, when God comes calling, thank God he does come calling. And thank God at least you and I answered that call. Some of us, it took a long time, didn't it? Some of us, we heard that call a long, long time before we responded. But eventually, in the grace of God and the mercy of God and in His patience, He strove with us until we bent the knee and received Christ. So thank God, amen? amen. Lord, we bless you tonight. We thank you that in your patience and mercy, you never gave up on us. Yeah. We thank you for all those who prayed for us, for all those who witnessed to us, for all those, Lord, that we looked to and we saw a life that was different and better. We bless you for that, Lord, for all of those witnesses over many years until finally we surrendered our lives to you. So we give you thanks for this, Lord, tonight. We bless you for all of your mercies. And Lord, as we go into a new week, we pray that your mercies will remain and, and continue with us, Lord. And Lord, whatever the enemy, as we sang earlier, has planned for us, Lord, that you will turn it into our good, Amen. to the glory of God. Hallelujah. So we thank you, Lord, that we're on the victory side. We always triumph in Christ. 
We thank you, Lord, that you're the greater one and you live inside us. So we bless you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.